Welcome to Flatbush in Maine, a podcast from Brooklyn Historical Society. Where we make history the Brooklyn way. Each month, Flatbush in Maine digs into Brooklyn's quirky, surprising, diverse history, linking it to the most salient issues shaping our world today. And we give a glimpse into how we make and preserve history every day here at Brooklyn Historical Society, a 154-year-old museum, archives, and urban history center. We are your hosts, Julie Golia, Director of Public History at Brooklyn Historical Society, and Zahir Ali, Oral Historian at Brooklyn Historical Society. Meet us at the intersection of Brooklyn's past and present. On a hot night in July 1977, the lights went out. The blackout left New York City without power for over 24 hours. The resulting unrest left many neighborhoods in Brooklyn in ruins. In this episode of Flatbush in Maine, we explore the meaning and legacy of the infamous 1977 blackout. There's so much happening in the first half of the 1970s that by the time this blackout happens on uh, in July 1977, that night, people don't see uh, any kind of alternative future. So they're like, OK, well, we need to go get some stuff. The collection is a really on-the-ground, documenting different parts of the neighborhood. We see both um, pictures of the fires being put out, as well as a chronicling of so much of the damage that took place in Bushwick, which was, as we said, one of the most hard-hit neighborhoods by this event. When I was going to Utica Avenue that day, I, that night, actually, I don't know, I was just going to hang out. I was just going with the crowd was going, see what they was doing, that's all. I was just following everybody else. There have been a number of blackouts throughout New York's history, and one of them is recent enough that I bet a number of our listeners probably experienced it. Here, you were here during the 2003 blackout, right? That's right. And one of the things that really struck me was how dependent we were on so much that we just didn't have access to. And refrigeration, refrigeration, air conditioning, air conditioning, uh, of course, uh, even things like cash registers. I remember going to the store in a panic. And at a certain point, the um, cashiers just couldn't calculate fast enough and just said, take it. Gas. You know, just leave your money. Yeah, Yeah, I know. And it kind of gets you to think about a moment when uh, I don't want to say a more primitive moment, but a moment where we don't have all of these elaborate systems that make things so convenient for us. Yeah, and so dependent. And so dependent. But it was just a taste of what um, more devastating blackouts have been in New York's history. Yeah, and I think there's a pretty big consensus among historians that the blackout of 1977 that we're going to talk about today was certainly the most devastating on the landscape and in the experiences of New Yorkers at the time. And of course, takes place against the a backdrop that we're going to talk about today, a really difficult time yeah, in New York's yeah. history of uh, you know, fiscal crisis and austerity, of um, segregation, and we're going to give some context to that particular kind of now infamous event. Yeah, and I think coming out of the blackout, uh, New York is 
poised to decide what kind of city it wants to be and whose city it wants to be and who it wants to be for. I mean, one of the most interesting things, I think, reading about this blackout is the kind of fluke way that it started. Uh, it was a series of lightning strikes. Like a whole lot of lightning. Yes, <laughs> like not just once or two. Like I, think like I think it was like four. <laughs> yeah. Like at different locations, it's right? Unbelievable. And so there's basically an overload in the transmission of electricity. And then when there's this sort of one of the biggest generators in New York City gives out essentially around 930 on the night of July 13th. Poof, the lights go out. And they're out for over 24 hours. Wow. And what you see result, particularly in poorer neighborhoods around New York, was widespread looting. There was a lot of arson. There were fires across the city. And some of the most hard-hit neighborhoods were right here in Brooklyn. Crown Heights, for example, was a neighborhood that was incredibly hard hit. 75 stores on five blocks um, saw damage done by looters. And then in Bushwick, this is, I would say, where you see the nexus of Mm -hmm. uh, of fires. Uh, There are rampant fires all over that uh, that area. 35 blocks of Broadway are destroyed uh, Mm -hmm. by the next day. 134 stores damaged. 45 of them were set on fire. All in, by the end of this sort of event, 4,500 people were arrested. Wow. And when they counted up the damage, it was about $300 million of damage in 1977, which is the equivalent of over a billion and a half dollars today. What's going on in New York in the 1970s that sets the stage for the blackout of 1977? Well, one of the first things that uh, comes to mind, and this was plaguing or beginning to face many cities, uh, especially cities that had drawn their strength from traditional industries that relied on factory workers or semi-skilled workers and laborers. And that was deindustrialization, which was the movement of industries from especially the Northeast, right? Northeastern cities, uh, the decline of those industrial centers, and certainly New York, Uh, experience that uh, particularly um, acutely. Yeah, and we've talked about this on past episodes, particularly the decline of like the port of New York and its movement across the river to New Jersey. Brooklyn is particularly hard hit by this, but I think it's important to kind of really hone in on what deindustrialization does to a space. Once businesses move out, you lose a massive amount of tax revenue. Mm -hmm. You lose well-paying jobs because New York was also a, a nexus for unions and union jobs, um, you know, garnered larger wages than a lot of other places. Sort of one of the things that pushed businesses out of the city Mm -hmm. in the first place Mm -hmm. was the high wages. And then we also see related to this what people often call white flight, which was the movement of working class and sort of middle class white people out to the suburbs, fueled in a lot of ways by the Robert Moses highways that were being, you know, built out of the city at this time. They also take a massive tax base with them. And so we're seeing a city losing sort of money in its coffers very rapidly. Yeah, just hemorrhaging. These, exactly. Yeah. Doing these like really big structural paradigm changes uh, in the city. 
There's also a lot of changing demographics here in New York City. Also, something we've talked about in the right, past. Right. Um, the you know, lots of times there's a misnomer that segregation is just a Southern thing, but you know, we know and our listeners know that segregation has really been part of the fabric of New York City, and you see increasing neighborhood segregation as neighborhoods like Bed Stuy, Crown Heights, um, Brownsville get more and more crowded with largely black, black and brown people. Yeah, and I think there are also new waves of immigrants coming in the 1970s, especially after the lifting of the immigration ban in 1965. And they're all flocking to cities like New York, and certainly Brooklyn has that history too. And so the, um, the city is sort of you know, being called upon to buttress and support these growing populations in the face of the yeah. declining industries, in the face of the suburbanization and the um, departure of and, and flight of a tax base. Yep. Um, and what are they finding when they get here? There, there are less jobs, right? Um, you know, racial covenants in neighborhoods across the city mean that they must live in particular places because they're not able to rent or buy in places that are traditionally, quote, unquote, white neighborhoods. And so this is, and I think people often wonder, well, if people are moving out, why are people of color crowding in particular neighborhoods? Well, there were all kinds of structural reasons related to the law, but mm-hmm. also related to real estate practices yeah. that didn't simply didn't allow people of color to live in a lot of neighborhoods. Yeah, and you know, with redlining, which is the practice of determining that certain neighborhoods are, are represent high-risk investments, so banks aren't lending credit uh, to even homeowners in those neighborhoods that um, would allow them to improve their properties to do needed repairs. Uh, And as a result, uh, these properties begin to decline in order for people to uh, make up the the loss of capital represented by redlining. People begin turning these homes into SROs and they begin subdividing and subdividing. Um, you know, further overburdening right. these properties, these the housing stock uh, really begins to decline because of disinvestment. That's right. Uh, as a result uh, of these these practices, so one of the questions this begs is, what were the officials doing? How were people trying to respond to this? This is where this crowding of these neighborhoods and the financial uh, crisis collide, right? Because as you see this tax base decline, as you see the coffers in New York having less and less money, the city eventually defaults on its debt. Wow. It's it, yeah. it's in hundreds yeah. of millions of dollars of debt. Um, they look to the federal government to bail them out. This is that famous Ford to City drop dead yeah. headline from yeah. 1975 that a lot of people have probably seen basically saying the federal government is not going to bail you out. And in the face of this massive default, cuts needed to be made and were made everywhere. Pensions were cut into, city services yeah. were cut back, yeah. and particularly in these crowded neighborhoods neighborhoods, you start to see things like less garbage, pick up less police, which is, of course, a a very complicated and fraught issue, less, you know, support of of firemen. And so we are seeing uh, these conditions that you just described made even worse by the austerity policies. Yeah. And I think what's interesting, the city 
I, I want to say city elders, but the some of the people who came up with solutions weren't even elected officials, right? It was basically like wealthy people That's in the right, city yeah. got together and formed uh, something called the Metropolitan Assistance Corporation. And they began issuing bonds to raise money for the city. And we went to unions and tried to get the unions to invest their pensions into these bonds, right? So... Um, what's really interesting about the way that people think about this period of time in in New York City's history um, with a kind of inevitability, like yes. this just happened and we didn't have any choices in what was going to happen. Like we just needed to do this austerity measures were, were absolutely necessary. And I think choices were made. And I, I don't have alternatives because I'm not like a master economist. And if I did, I have lots of money because Many cities and even countries had deal with this repeatedly, but I do think we have to like lay bare the fact that certain choices were made yes. in terms of how inevitable. to yes. how to respond to this, and the people who devised the plan, uh, the austerity plan, weren't even like elected officials. Like yeah. poor Mayor Abraham Beam yeah. um, was kind of stuck in this, yes. right? Like he was the mayor at the time, and he had no choice but to go along. Uh, because there was no money. You know, a lot of what happened in the 70s was the result of these, like, again, like these paradigmic changes. But for a second, let's just stop and think about what it was like to, you know, own a brownstone in Bed-Stuy and you couldn't get loans. Mm -hmm. And so you began subdividing it into different apartments. Your house gets more and more crowded. It's hard to do upkeep. They cut garbage pickup to your neighborhood. There's smelly garbage piling up in the heat wave of July 1970. You know, somebody breaks a window, you can't afford to fix it, and the police are not around to be sort of protecting your neighborhood. So with the garbage pickup, there's increasing fire hazards, yeah, right? Yeah. So it's just we to be there on the ground and to think about the particular experience of, say, a homeowner living right. in Bushwick right. or in Bed-Stuy or in Crown Heights, I think gives us a different a different understanding of, of what went down in New York in so many ways in the 1970s. Not only were the services being cut, but this then began to have this ricocheting effect on the quality of education that was available, on health, right? Access to health services. Access to health services. Um, You know, Wages were wages were falling. Health, um, access to healthy access, food. Yeah, I mean, yeah. access to the resources like libraries. I mean, it's a very interesting thing in the context of what we were talking about in the 70s in Crown Heights when we talked about um, Arthur Miller. Yes, you know what I mean? Yes. Because what you also see, on the other hand, is just a community response right. to this. So I don't want it to come off like we're sort of saying everybody living in you know Crown Heights was a victim of these right, massive policies. Right. People responded, and, right. and they did what they could. And But that's even proof that... That it is possible to imagine a different kind of way, yes. right? Like yeah. the problem is a problem of scale. Like yes. the people who have the imagination for an alternative are like hyper localized and limited in terms of the access to resources that they have. But the people who have all the resources are like lacking in political imagination. Yeah, I mean, well, and it's interesting because it also then, if you think about like the risk that would be entailed and say, opening a store 
in a neighborhood like Bushwick yeah. at the time, you know, the enormous financial risk of that, the difficulty of borrowing money, um, the difficulty of carrying insurance and how expensive insurance is. And that, I feel like, kind of leads us in maybe back to July of 1977. It's important for us to think about the language that we use, because the language that was used at the time, if you read newspaper articles, uh, plundering, right. uh, the reign of a, terror, a frenzied a mob. Frenzied Mob. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I think one person wrote about the looters as like insects coming out in the dark. I mean, it was really dehumanizing language. Yeah. And I don't, it's not that, I, I think I want to be clear, like I don't support looting. <laughs> right. um, but I do think, and this is where the historical um, perspective comes into play to think about how we talk about right. certain historical actors in one setting versus historical actors in another setting. And and I think looting is, is such a charged term now right. uh, and in over the way that it's been deployed in the media over the last 50 years, we have a very, and I'll just be frank, racialized yeah. idea of what looting is as well as rioting. And we've talked about rioting and the language about rioting before. Um, but I think we've talked about the disparities that the, the blackout revealed. Um, let's talk about the language that we use to talk about this and the search. I think on the part of well-meaning historians yes. and, and others who've chronicled this to come up with accurate language to describe what happened. Well, it brings me to mind of our conversation about Crown Heights riots, right? And whether we want to use the word riot, people say unrest, people say uprising. And I feel like what's going on there's there's a dialogue about motivation and like the notion of alternate forms of activism, mm-hmm. right? So, you know, what were the political motivations behind the decisions that were yeah. made by people at various moments? One of the things that's always struck me as interesting is that in a lot of the tellings of the blackout, as you say, we, we've heard about rioting, looting, frenzy, but you also hear you know, that people were then going and doling out food to other people, right? You know, that there was a real fear of austerity in these neighborhoods. And, um, you know, sort of what is the motivation for breaking into a place, taking things and then doling them out to the community? And I think that's just a fascinating way of sort of, again, community representation in the face of a a government totally abdicating any responsibility for the well-being of those people in that neighborhood. To give support to what you just said, I think there was one study or one report talked about the day after the blackout when things were being restored the city offered jobs to people to do cleanup work yes. and the number of black and latino especially yeah. young people yes. who signed up or who lined up to sign up for these low paying jobs yeah. for part time work to do this cleanup i think you know, challenges the notion that these neighborhoods had people who were looking for freebies, were looking for handouts, were not trying to work. Uh, the night of the blackout, there was no prospect of employment. The night of the blackout, there was no prospect of work, right? The night of the blackout came, as we've discussed, uh, as part of this long culmination of at least 10 or so years of the the move away from the Great Society programs, mm-hmm. the defunding of Great Society programs in favor of like the war in Vietnam, yep. um, the devastating impact of the heroin play 
plague that was in part fueled by people coming back from the war seeking medication yep. for their PTSD, yep. right? The the war on drugs. I mean, there's so much happening in the first half of the 1970s mm-hmm. that by the time this blackout happens on July 1977, that night, people don't see any kind of alternative future. So they're like, okay, yep. well, we need to go get some stuff. Yeah. And I mean, speaking of stuff, I'm also really fascinated by the media focus on what kind of stuff was yes. taken, right? And so you hear these stories and they're clearly like so anecdotal, like somebody broke into a, a car dealership and stole 50 Buicks or whatever. You hear a lot about TVs, a lot about electronics, and you never do hear about like bread and right. food right. and, you know, we want to take like taking food before it spoils from the refrigeration. So I, I'm also fascinated by what is focused on and the way that becomes a racialized story. Absolutely. Because right? there's this like sense of... Um, this notion that people aren't entitled to things, right? Um, and I'm not saying, like, you shouldn't work right. and get your stuff. Like, that's not what I'm saying. But there's this sense that we have such a reductivist idea of what, quote, unquote, bare necessities are that maybe if people were focused on people, like, stealing food, they're like, oh, well, people are hungry and they need to get food. But someone getting a TV or a radio, they're like, you don't need that. But do you really? <laughs> like, because... In a capitalist society where consumer capitalism is the opiate of right. the masses that gives meaning to your life mm-hmm. when no other thing is giving meaning or the things that traditionally give meaning have been completely undermined by capitalism, then this is this is almost, yeah, I can't say that it's not a necessity to have these other things that people don't link to survival. Love this podcast? Then head over to Apple Podcasts and search for Flatbush and Maine to subscribe, rate, and review us. This increases our rankings and makes it easier for interested listeners like you to find us. Here's something interesting to think about in terms of a blackout. That is a very, very difficult event to visually record. Mm. So there's no electricity. So there was no news coverage of this, obviously. In fact, not only did people's TVs not work, but there was no programming going at the time. That's right. And with pictures, um, you know, it was really dark <laughs> when, when, the, when yeah. the blackout began, yeah. right? So the very first hours of it were almost impossible to capture. That said, we are really lucky because we have an incredibly rich collection of slides capturing some of the aftermath of the blackout the day after, as well as the damage that came to be revealed in the days after July 13th and July 14th. So this collection is called the 1977 Blackout Slide Collection. We'll link to the finding aid on the show notes. Um, And it's a really interesting collection in terms of how we got it. Um, Basically, it was donated by a Bushwick resident who had come into this collection of slides that were taken by two photographers whose names have now been lost. Mm. We don't know who they were. So Mm -hmm. there are these two uh, anonymous photographers. um, And the collection is a really on the ground documenting different parts of the neighborhood. We see both um, pictures of the fires being put out, as well as a chronicling of so much of the damage that took place in Bushwick, which was, as we said, one of the most hard hit neighborhoods by this event. When people think of Bushwick today, it is one of the up and coming neighborhoods that is part of the story of gentrification slash urban renewal. 
and a neighborhood that um, is now flipping housing like mad <laughs> and building new <laughs> and, housing. And building new housing. Um, so give us a sense of what Bushwick was like. Well, Bushwick and, has a and, long, yeah. long history. In fact, we'll do an episode on beer soon enough mm, that will bring mm-hmm. us back to Bushwick. Um, it was sort of a, the like ground zero for breweries, particularly German breweries established by immigrants in the 19th century. Hundreds of breweries at its height. By the end of World War II, there are only seven left. So in a lot of ways, it's this perfect crystallization of some of the themes of deindustrialization that we have been talking about, the movement mm-hmm. of business away from the area, really old housing stock that fell into disrepair that was kind of primed for being burnt down because it was in a lot of ways a fire hazard um, as we moved into the into the late 20th century. But Bushwick was hit hard. And a year later, 40% of the neighborhood's businesses have had wow. closed. I mean, think about the kind of economic impact and social impact that must have had mm-hmm. on the neighborhood mm-hmm. at the time. So there were just stretches and stretches of streets that were completely burnt out, as I think we see and really vividly yeah. Yeah. in these color slides that we're looking yeah, at. Yeah, I think when I hear and read about the blackout, I think Bushwick is often spoken of in terms of Brooklyn as a kind of ground zero for the kind of destruction, not only of the looting, but also of the destruction of property through these fires. Yeah, and through some of these pictures, like this one that we're looking at right here, we really not only see the damage, but the nature of the housing stock that existed before. So we see wood frame buildings. We see really low slung buildings, which is unusual for mm-hmm. the 1970s and shows how old the housing stock was. And we also can see how easily it burned down. Yeah. I mean, these fires must have ripped through these buildings so quickly. It's quite remarkable. So should we dive into this collection? Um, I think... One of the things that I want to point out that as an institution, I want us to own up to as we talked in the earlier segment about the difficulties that historians have had and others have had in talking about the blackout and the looting and the aftermath is trying to find language that um, can accurately describe what happens without sensationalizing it. And I don't know that that anyone has done it perfectly. And I think when you read the finding aid for this collection, I think it reflects the challenges of trying to get that language right. Yeah, if anyone ever wonders if... um you know, cataloging description can be political, <laughs> yeah, or can yeah. have or can have yeah. influence. I think this really shows that to be the case. And again, as you said, I think shows the real difficulty of finding quote unquote neutral language to yeah. describe things. I mean, I'll just read from the historical note. It describes the fire and it says, despite this frenzy for destruction, the looters across New York City were remarkably peaceable, showing little violence either towards the police or towards each other. And I just thought that juxtaposition was so fascinating. So the ultimate conclusion of the sentence is that the quote unquote looters were peaceable right, right? and but it started with this sort of notion of a frenzied Frenzy. mob right and yeah. and it, it is the kind of language that I think we really want to move away from our question at a minimum mm-hmm, but certainly mm-hmm. move away from when we're talking about the events that took place yeah. in 1977 yeah. one of the things that I do like about this collection are that the images capture Bushwick right at this kind of transitionary period Even pictures that show destruction in an aftermath, you see the ghosts 
of the earlier structure. You see what was there before. Uh, and of course, um, the fact that these buildings have been destroyed, it lays the groundwork for the Bushwick to come. And one of these images is titled, Extinguishing a Fire in the Ruth and Sam Bookshop Building. And it shows firefighters working to extinguish this fire. And there's a second image related, says firemen extinguishing a fire above a bookstore. Now, this particular fire was massive. massive. This was one of the biggest fires in Bushwick. It was a 10 alarm fire. It took them five hours and, you know, countless firemen to to put this fire out, massive amount of damage. And with this capturing of this sign in this picture, it just made us say, you know, what was the Ruth and Sam bookshop? What do they sell there? And amazingly, thanks to the power of the Internet. We actually were able to find out a little bit about it by some people who recorded their recollections of this bookshop when they were growing up in Bushwick. And we're going to link to the blog of somebody named Nick Caputo, who describes um, Ruth and Sam this way. During the 1960s and into the early 1970s, it was commonplace for a neighborhood in New York to have stores that had no exact classification. A segment of these establishments also bought and sold used books, magazines, records, coins, stamps, war memorabilia, and assorted ephemera. Of the ones I frequented in Brooklyn, many were owned by middle-aged or older couples. The interiors shared similarities, cluttered, dusty, and often unorganized, but with a sense of wonderment and surprise. Who knows what treasures might lurk within the ruins. It turns out that Nick is describing the Ruth and Sam bookshop in Bushwick and going there when he grew up with his brother John, buying comic books there and being a place that was so figurative in his memory of growing up in Brooklyn at the time. I just want to say how I want to find out who Ruth and Sam were. So if if any of our listeners know uh, any more about Ruth and Sam's bookshop and who Ruth and Sam were like they just sound like an just yeah. sound like an amazing couple email uh, us tweet yeah. us let us know but i i like that this image captured a bookshop because there is this sense um, when we came to this topic, that Bushwick was like a wasteland. Exactly. Um, and the fact that there was a bookshop there says something about community. It says something about the uh, vibrancy of a cultural and even intellectual life in the community that I think people may take for granted or may not even see or know about because of who lived there. And I think that's pretty awesome that there was this couple who had a bookstore that provided that kind of joy to someone like the writer who described it and others. And and I think that's pretty awesome. And I'm glad that we kind of get got... Uh, insight into that from this this image. Yeah, well, and I'm thinking, you know, despite the fact that this is an essay online, when I was thinking about this, it actually really struck me as um, why oral history is so important. Mm-hmm. Because mm-hmm. It, it, with events like this, there is no time to chronicle this. We don't have the archival collection of the Ruth and Sam bookshop. We don't even have photographic evidence of it, right? And, but what we do have is this person's really specific and really evocatively described story. And this is the one way that we are able to kind of preserve that history. And who knows what other wonderful stories were lost in that fire in 1977.
In this Voices of Brooklyn, we are going to listen to Rudy Suggs, who was born in Brooklyn in 1962 and grew up in Crown Heights. In this clip, Rudy describes, from a 15-year-old's perspective, the experience that he had of the blackout. When the blackout happened, the city said Mr. Riley because everybody was on the stoop that day when it happened, right? And I had to be no more than what, maybe about 15. Somewhere around there, though, and I was sitting there. You know, all the kids happy, yay! So my mother looked at me. She said, "Where you going? I'm going to Utica Avenue." She looked at me. Where you going to Utica? I don't know. I'm just going to Utica Avenue. So my mother was funny. You did what you wanted to do. Don't bring it in my house. Right? That's the whole thing. Don't don't bring your illicit games in my house or anything like that. So a whole crowd of us go to Utica Avenue and we just see all the stores open up. People done broke into them and stuff like that. That was when Lee Dungarees was out and all these type of jeans and stuff like that. So they had a they had a um they had an electronic store yeah. And at a discount store called Giant Discounts. So I went into the electronics store. I think I was the littlest person in there. I went to the electronics store and they had opened up a hole about this big. And I'm going in there and I'm saying, oh wow, TV store. Come to TV, pass them out. I'm passing them through the door. And I was coming up. By the time I got out, I didn't have a TV. We couldn't change TVs. I pushed out somebody already took them. So I said, this is not going to work. So I went next door, they had broken to the store next door, they went next door, and giant discount, and I know they had, the next day we had sneakers, we had jeans, we had everything. So there's a building across the street from my house, I couldn't take it in the house. So there was an apartment building across the street called 1170 Lincoln Place. That next day we had a, a store inside of 1170 Lincoln Place. <laughs> we had everything that we had in that store, in that hallway, selling it. We were selling jeans for $5. We selling sneakers for $10. And that day, that was it. I didn't even, I didn't even, the blackout didn't even face nobody. When I was going to Utica Avenue that day, I, that night actually, I don't know, I was just going to hang out. I was just going with the crowd was going, see what they was doing, that's all. I was just following everybody else. So we had to do, there was nothing else to do. It was, it was pitch black. Nobody had no electricity. There was no cell phones then. <laughs> you know, I just followed everybody else. You get the new cabinet, we'll see what happened. But there was, a, there was a couple of jewelry stores. The owners were standing out there with their guns. So we bypassed them and those two places was the only ones that was available at that time. And then there was a couple of su supermarkets and stuff like that, but eventually they would have to throw the food out anyway because that day. So what I'm struck by when I listen to this is just how young Rudy is. He's little. He's, this is like a, what it was a formative childhood experience yeah. for him. Yeah. And I'm also struck, you know, we've painted this event against the backdrop of a very dark time. But through the lens of childhood, <laughs> yeah, it has like a, it has a different, a different tinge, you know? You know, so in full disclosure, 
I think there was some trepidation in selecting this clip. Yeah, for both of us. For both yeah. of us, because we didn't want to, um, you know, we wanted to be careful about how, like, we were talking about the looting and the experience that people had. And we didn't want it to play into stereotypes. We didn't want it to play into stereotypes. And I think one of the things that really strikes me, and and I appreciate you pointing out the youth and Rudy pointing out his own youthfulness, is that young people do stupid things. Exactly. Let's just start there, right? And there's a question of who gets to engage in youthful foolishness and who doesn't. And there certainly has been a lot of scholarship and a lot of discussion when people talk about the carceral state and the prison industrial complex and the criminalization of black young people um, who get treated as adults um, when they're children. And I think, you know, the first thing that we have to do in coming to this story about Rudy is this is a 15-year-old and Rudy might probably agree, I don't know, but a knucklehead. Like, you're a teenager, and he's just, I just wanted to see what people were doing. You know, and I think we have to, I'm again, not making excuses, but understand that um, this is not an indictment of anything other than just this is a young person making decisions that young people make when you're 15 and are not, like, taking into full consideration all of the factors and risks of things. I mean, teenagers are, like, risk is the least thing, the least important factor when teenagers are making their decisions, which is why teenagers get into stupid stuff, yeah. right? Well, and I also just appreciated how how just frank— uh, yeah, you know, Rudy, this is, I think, a, a really important thing about oral histories. People don't have to tell their stories. That's right. And they can edit their stories. That's right. And this is an elder man telling a story about his youth. Yes. And I think there's something to really honor about the real straightforward honesty yes. that he put there. Yes. The other thing, though, that I, I appreciate about this oral history is the detail. You know, we talked about in the earlier segments about what this experience was like using a kind of macro view of statistics and um, there were no oral histories done, uh, you know, on the ground of people who would have been criminalized, who would have been arrested, uh, asking people what was going on, what did you see, what did you think? And there were two things that stood out at me, stood out for me in, in this narration. One was the establishment of like an alternative store. Uh, that Rudy describes. And I I don't know if that's subversive or not, but I do think it's interesting that uh, a kind of alternative economic you know, apparatus is established um, that there it isn't that people just like in this instance, just like stole things and took them home. It was that people wanted to replicate the business model that they themselves were not able to participate in, in the kind of quote unquote mainstream economy. And we've laid out like all of the issues about like redlining of districts, inability to gain an access to credit. And there it it suggests like what opportunities existed. Yeah. yeah. Like people wanted to run a yeah. business. Yeah. They just couldn't. Yeah. Um, the other thing that, that struck me is when he talks about the supermarkets. And, and I think, Julie, you mentioned this earlier that we don't hear about the um, looting so-called of food 
uh, because that maybe elicits a more sympathetic um, understanding of like this food is going to spoil. He says that the food was going to spoil anyway. Yeah. yeah. And so I appreciate that in this story, even as it is kind of challenging, um, you know, because you're right. Like Rudy just kind of matter of factly tells this story and he doesn't do it to gain sympathy. He doesn't do it to defend his actions. He also doesn't do it to demonize or, or, or you know, criminalize his actions. He's like, this is just what happened. And I, I kind of appreciate it as a source for that. So here and I are going to joint endorse event because we're both so excited about it and we fought and fought and fought and just decided that we were going to both endorse the And same thing. when you hear about it, you'll understand why. The event is Black-Owned Businesses, A History of Enterprise and Community in Brooklyn. This is taking place at our Pierpont Street location on Monday, February 11th, 2019 at 6.30 p.m. At this program, we will be exploring the rich history and social impact of businesses owned by and serving Black communities in Brooklyn. Historian Jason Bartlett will be joined by Cynthia Gordon-Giwa, who is editor-in-chief of the online publication Black-Owned Brooklyn, and Jill Hubbard-Sock, founder of Crown Heights yoga studio Urban Asanas, to discuss the challenges and triumphs of the network of Black business owners then and now, and how growing economic empowerment has tied directly to the struggle for equality. The discussion will be moderated by digital editor of Black Enterprise and host of What's Eating Harlem, Selena Hill. So again, this is Monday, February 11th, and it starts at 6.30 p.m. Tickets are $5 free if you're a member, which you, of course, all are now. And we're especially excited about this because we did a podcast on this very subject a few months ago. That's right. So to prime up for this event, check out our podcast episode on Black businesses in Brooklyn. We'll link to it in the show notes. And with this episode of Flatbush in Maine, we've made Brooklyn history. You can learn more about Flatbush in Maine at brooklynhistory.org slash flatbush-maine. There you'll find more details from each episode, pictures of documents and artifacts, and clips and info on oral histories. Be sure to subscribe to our podcast and rate us on Apple Podcasts or any other podcast platform you use. Our audio editor is Tim DeKino, and our show music is by Joe Schloss. Find out more about him at josephschloss.com. Tune in each month for lots more Brooklyn history. From Brooklyn Historical Society, we are your hosts, Zahir Ali and Julie Golia. <laughs>